Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you on this Good Friday, Lord, and... uh, We pray, Lord, that you would do the act that Paul talked about. He talked about preaching being the public proclamation of Christ crucified. Christ himself displayed crucified among us. And we pray for that miracle, Lord. We pray that we would see and hear and understand more of the depths of the cross than we ever have before. We pray, Lord, that that's a work only you can do. We thank you for this event that we celebrate Uh, We thank you, Father, that this is something that was in your heart to do before you found the world, before you created everything. You knew that you would do this for us. 
specifically for us. For those who are in Christ, you have always had kind thoughts of deliverance toward us. And we're so thankful that you would give your one and only son for us. That is not something that we can ever imagine doing for anyone. And yet you did it for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet your enemies, while we were yet turning our backs and forsaking you, you sent your own son. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for answering the call of your father to come and be our substitute, to be the man on the cross, to come become a human being and give yourself for us, for our sins, to welcome us into your family. Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to believe. Lord, we thank you for the amazing work of regeneration that you do, O Holy Spirit, that you've done in our hearts. Everyone who's here who knows you, Lord, knows you because you, Holy Spirit, have opened our hearts to believe. We pray that you do that among us tonight for visitors, for longtime members, maybe, that don't know you, and for our children, we pray, that you would open eyes to, to see and taste the goodness of you in the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is one of the five major holidays on the traditional church calendar. And so the traditional church holidays are Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And so we have those to come. We have Easter coming in a couple of days, and then we have Ascension. That's six weeks after that, and then seven weeks after that is Pentecost. And Good Friday is set aside to remember the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to catch you up with what's been going on this week. So if you were here last week, you know that last Sunday was Palm Sunday. That was the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9 and proclaiming that he was the true king of Israel, their savior. On Monday, he went not to the palace, which is where you'd expect a king to go, but to the temple. He takes authority of the temple because this king is God himself. On Tuesday, he taught and debated with his opponents and showed his wisdom that he was a king wiser than Solomon. On Wednesday, the religious leaders plotted against him to kill him. But this only shows the sovereignty of our king because as they're plotting against him, they're actually fulfilling his very plans of redemption. On Thursday, yesterday, was the Last Supper. He washed the disciples' feet. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. When his betrayer comes, he greets him. And he willingly goes with those who are arresting him. Thursday tells us that this king, this God, this king, this Messiah, willingly gave himself for us. Friday, today, is the day that early in the morning there were multiple unjust trials. Mocking, beating, whipping, and the crucifixion. And tonight we're going to be in Psalm 22 to focus on what happened on that Friday, that Holy Friday, Good Friday. Psalm 22, as you can see at the very top, is written by King David. So it's written about a thousand years before the crucifixion. That's, if you're new to the Bible, that's very important that these details would be given a thousand years, ten centuries, before, before Christ even came. This psalm, though, in its original context is about King David's experience of feeling forsaken. So this is a psalm about a suffering king, a king that finds himself forsaken by God. But it was also designed, guys, as a song for any believer that has the feeling of being forsaken. And all of us who have followed the Lord for any considerable amount of time have gone through difficult times where we feel God has forsaken us. We feel far off from him. There's things like the the dark night of the soul and all types of suffering where we don't feel his presence. And This psalm, guys, is, among all the others, a worship song. We can see that from the top of Psalm 22. It says, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. So it's like, hey, choir master, this is how you do this song. You do it according to this tune. This is a worship song. 
This was a song that was given to anyone who feels forsaken, for anyone who asks, like in verse 1, why? So tonight we're going to look at this suffering king. We're going to look at three points. We're going to look at the absence of God, the presence of his enemies, and then the victory of his sufferings. First, the absence of God. Psalm 22 starts off with David's cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me? From the words of my groaning, why have you forsaken me? He's asking, you know, what have I done to deserve this? You see my suffering. Why have you forsaken me? What have I done to deserve this? And he gives several reasons why he shouldn't be forsaken. He says, why are you forsaking me? I pray faithfully to you. Look at verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night and I find no rest. He's like, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. You know, the reason I'm in this situation, the reason I'm in this darkness and feel apart from you isn't because I don't pray. He says, why have you forsaken me? I worship you. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. He's like, we're not idol worshipers. We worship you. You know, why have you forsaken me? I haven't forsaken you. Why are you forsaking me? He says, why have you forsaken me? You've rescued others. Look at verse 4. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He's like, I've heard all the stories of our ancestors. They called out to you, and you came, and you rescued. Why not me? You know, why have you forsaken me? And he says, why have you forsaken me? I've known you all my life. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he whom, who took me from the womb, who made me to trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. Trouble is near, and there is none to help. You know, David isn't the kind of person that had a dramatic conversion story. As far as he can remember, he followed the Lord. You know, he got converted at some point, but he doesn't remember a time. He's, ever since he was a little kid, he's like, I've known you all my life. Why would you forsake me now? You know, I thought we were close. Were we close? He says, why have you forsaken me? I trusted in you. Over and over again, he pleads for God to rescue him. And it's heartbreaking to hear. And so David's facing... A sense of forsakenness, a sense of the absence of God. And not only is he facing that, but he, he's not only facing the absence of God, but the presence of his enemies. God is silent to him, but his enemies aren't. There's his enemies dehumanizing contempt. Look at verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You know, there's the contempt of his enemies. And they rub salt in his wounds, don't they? They're like, well, you know, a lot of good your faith is doing you now. You know, let God deliver you. You said he likes you. I'm not seeing it. And, and this, this treatment, this contempt with their words, they despise him, they mock him, and they treat him as he's the lowest form of life. He says, I feel like a worm, the way people are treating me. The whole thing's dehumanizing. And then there's the animal cruelty of his attackers. Take a look at this. His enemies aren't just cruel in their words and looks. They're literally out for blood. There's like an animal-like cruelty. He compares his enemies in these passages to bulls and lions and dogs and oxen. He's saying the people that are attacking me are like animals. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Basham surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Or verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. 
He's saying these people that are trying to attack me, they have like pure animal predatory instincts. They want to bite, tear, and devour me. And there's something, guys, about a mob, there's something about a crowd that people can be far more cruel in a group than they would be normally. You know? And that's what he's saying. There's this mob of people, and, and they just are out for blood. There's something about the way a group can encourage the worst impulses. And we've not become more civilized than 3,000 years ago. We can all think of examples in very recent past of people that would gather together and do this kind of thing. And then there's the other exhaustion he just has from his torment. Look at verse 14. He says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts in my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust. This is his, his feeling of forsakenness and his enemies surrounding him. And they're out for blood. But then there's something more. And I think you guys might have noticed it occurs right around verse 16, where there's something that happens deeper that doesn't really make sense that it would be about David. Verse 16, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of elders encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And you think, really, David? They stare and gloat over me. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. This is where it gets weird, right? This is where there's something beyond what David experienced. It's actually something beyond what David could have experienced. Crucifixion wasn't even invented at this time. So this is a, a thousand years before Jesus was born, and crucifixion had not yet been invented, and yet you see this, they pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, and once you notice that verse 16 is something beyond David's experience, then you go back to the whole psalm and you find all kinds of things that fit his experience because Jesus Christ is the true suffering king of Psalm 22. I sent you guys by email this article. So this is, it was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is the main medical journal in the U.S. And it's on the physical death of Jesus Christ, which is kind of crazy that they ever published this. It's kind of amazing. But this was in 1986. Created a bit of a stir amongst their members. But what it is, is it's doctors going through and talking about medically what crucifixion was like. Really powerful. You guys should really check it out. I want to share with you guys tonight some of the historical and medical details of what Jesus went through. Because in the Gospels, it just says they crucified him. They didn't go into detail. You know why? Everybody had seen one. They were public executions. They happened all the time. And uh, normally, I would actually include some of the diagrams that are in here. Don't worry, parents. I'm not going to do that. Figure tonight, maybe not doing some of these diagrams. But I'll be pretty graphic, but I also don't think we'll overdo it. I don't think we can overdo it. It's crucifixion, okay? So, but before Jesus was crucified, he was scourged. Scourging was the first part of any Roman execution. Scourging was done with a leather whip. It had pieces of bone and metal in it. And so that when they would whip him, and they whipped him several times, the bone and the metal would kind of hook into the skin, like little hooks, so that when the, the whip was pulled away, it would tear away at the skin and subcutaneous tissues. They tied Jesus to a pole to do this, and they whipped him repeatedly to the point where, you know, eventually those pieces of bone would go through the skin, through the subcutaneous tissues, even into the back muscles. By the time of the cross, this is before the cross, by the time of the cross, Jesus' back would have been reduced to like quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Scourging was done until the victim was brought almost to the point of death or passing out. These particular executioners we know from the Gospels were quite creative. They would kind of egg each other on on how this could be done. 
with Jesus because he claimed to be a king. They mocked him by dressing him in a purple robe and putting a crown of thorns on his head and a scepter in his hand, and they, they fake bowed down to him, and then they beat him some more. Verse 12 says, Many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Basham have surrounded me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. But you, my help, come quickly. Deliver my soul from the sword and the precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then they crucified him. By the time Jesus was crucified, this is 10 centuries after uh, David wrote this. Crucifixion was invented about 800 years earlier. They had really perfected what they did. Even though the Romans used crucifixion a lot, they used it only for specific people, so rebels and slaves. For Romans, it was the most despised way to die. They didn't like to talk about it. They didn't like to look at it. They kind of pretended they didn't invent it. You know, like, oh, I think it was the Persians, which it may have been. But they kind of distanced themselves from it, even though they used it a lot. Cicero said that the word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of a Roman citizen, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. So it was a bit of dirty work they didn't really want to focus on. The Jews saw crucifixion as a clear sign of a curse from God. Deuteronomy says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The archaeological evidence for crucifixion is that the nails weren't put through the palm, like you see in a lot of like medieval art and stuff. They were put through the wrist. They've actually found nails attached to wrist bones. I mean, it's amazing the stuff that can be found because a lot of them were done. What happened was the soldier would have found Jesus's the depression right here in his wrist, driven the nail straight through here into, into the wood, pinning him to it. One thing I want you to realize about Jesus having this done to him is he offered his hands, okay? A lot of crucifixion victims were likely pulling away their hands and screaming and stuff like that. But Isaiah 53 said he was like a lamb to the slaughter, and he gave himself to this. So after nailing the one wrist onto the crossbeam, the soldier would have quickly grabbed his other wrist and, and nailed it on the other side. This nailing, though, had to not occur too tight. There had to be some freedom of motion. That horizontal crossbeam was then lifted onto the vertical beam. And then Jesus' right foot was put over his left foot, and one single nail was driven right through his feet between his metatarsal bones, through the arch of his feet. His knees were left uh, a little bit with a little bit of slack. And the reason for that is, if you're to pin somebody crucified to a cross too tightly, they can't breathe. You know, to be able to breathe, he would have to actually push himself up on the nail in his feet to give his chest room to breathe. When he was hanging down like this, he actually couldn't breathe. So you hold your breath as long as you can, hanging by your wrists. Push yourself up to be able to breathe. Get shooting pain through your peroneal and plantar nerves in your feet. Take as many breaths as you can stand, holding yourself like that, and then drop down onto the wrist. You can imagine what that does to your shoulders. And, you know, when you have, do drop down on those nails, you get shooting pain on your median nerve, up your fingers and down your arm. The, the nail went right through and would rub right against the median nerve, which is the nerve that affects you with carpal tunnel disease. So you can just imagine carpal tunnel syndrome, but this is a nail driven right through your wrist. And so Jesus would have repeated that procedure for several hours, you know, pushing himself up to be able to breathe. And then when he couldn't stand anymore, dropping himself down, holding his breath up and down, up and down all day until he died of suffocation. He twisted and he writhed all day. The pain was inescapable. The word excruciating means literally from the cross. It's a word that come from crucifixion. Verse 14 says, 
I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaw. They lay me in the dust of death. Crucifixion was designed not just to be maximally painful, but maximally humiliating. This is a public spectacle. It's to make a, an example out of the person that's crucified. Don't do this. They put the charge of the person on top. In Jesus' case, it said king of the Jews. He was claiming to be a king. The victims were crucified naked. You know, our art always shows a loincloth. That's not the case. That would be totally against the whole point. He would have been crucified completely naked. If they stayed up there too long, birds would start to pick at their eyes and things like that. Crucifixion could go on for days. It didn't in Jesus' case. Verse 17, as predicted, they gambled for his clothes. It's amazing, the detail, right? It says in the gospel that they did. They gambled for his clothes. The crowds gathered to scorn and despise and mock and insult him. It was designed to humiliate and be dehumanizing. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make faces at me. They wag their heads. And then this is chilling because verse 8 is something people literally said to him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 17 talks about the perverse enjoyment of watching this kind of torture. He says, I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. And then in the midst of this terrible form of execution, Jesus cries out, really it's more of a shriek. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice, guys, that that's his greatest source of pain. His greatest source of pain is not the physical pain, although the physical pain is unbelievable, right? what I just described. The greatest source of his pain is not the physical pain, but the being forsaken by God. Notice what Jesus says. He says, my God, my God. He does not say, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet. That was not where the greatest pain was. The greatest suffering of the cross was being forsaken by God, to be out of his presence, to be experiencing his absence. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to know that the physical suffering of Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg of his suffering. It gives us something physical that we can see to give us a hint of the internal horrors of hell that he's experiencing in his separation from God. On the cross, Jesus really was forsaken by God. When he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not wrong. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. And there's some mystery here, guys. I mean, the Trinity can't be separated and, you know, the Father never stopped loving the Son. But we have to take Jesus' word for it here when he says what he was experiencing. He says he was experiencing being forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And guys, that's a great question, isn't it? Why was he forsaken, right? When he pleads his righteousness in verses 3 through 11, the implication is is that God should not forsake people like Jesus, right? He has no reason to be forsaken, one who was so faithful in worship and trusted God his whole life, one would definitely expect, you know, idolaters or unfaithful people to be forsaken by God. People like us would be expected. Many sins against them. We've all forsaken God countless times in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words, in the way we've led our lives. It would be entirely just for God to forsake a person like us. But not this man. Not Jesus, right? No one had ever worshipped God better or prayed more or deserved a rescue more than Jesus. 
No one had ever known God more intimately or loved him more. So why him? God, why forsake him? On the cross, Jesus was forsaken for us. He was forsaken in our place. Isaiah 53 confirms this. It says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each turning to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. Remember that I said in the beginning, this psalm is a psalm for anyone that feels forsaken. I picked those words carefully. Feels forsaken. We may feel forsaken. We may feel like Psalm 22. But when we get to verse 16, we realize only Jesus has really been the forsaken one. You know, only he was pierced in this way. Only he was truly forsaken by God. And it was for us. Because if you're tonight trusting in Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, you have the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will never experience Psalm 22 in reality. You might feel that way, but you're never forsaken by him if you're in Jesus Christ. Sure, we deserve to be forsaken for our sin. We all do. But if you're in Christ, he was forsaken on your behalf so that you never will be. Think of the example of Peter. Peter literally forsook Jesus the night before, okay, and yet was restored. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken for him as well on the cross. And now at this point, one thing that's really important to kind of think through is that, and to remind you, is that Jesus was not a victim on the cross. When I was a kid, I think I was in elementary school, and I wasn't raised in a Christian family, didn't have an understanding of the cross, a little bit of Catholic school, still didn't have a whole great understanding of it. And I watched, I think it was during Easter time, there was a show where they showed the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think I was by myself so, watching this. And I just remember, like, crying about this and thinking that Jesus was like a powerless victim. The only thing I took away is like, man, how cruel people are, you know? He's a powerless victim. You know, I'm sure he'd get away if he could, that kind of thing. Guys, Jesus wasn't a victim. He was a volunteer, Okay, when you think of the cross, Jesus was not a victim, he was a volunteer. Those are very different things. Victims are those who have been hurt against their will. Jesus here is a volunteer. This is what he said in John 10. Listen to Jesus talking about the cross. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Don't you love that? Jesus saying that? No one takes my life from me. Don't get the wrong idea in a little bit when you see me nailed to that wood. Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer, which makes the cross an ultimate act of love, right? It's the ultimate act of love you can receive. It's God meeting your greatest need at his greatest cost, his life for yours. And I just ask you tonight, have you received Jesus Christ? Have you received his full forgiveness? You have seen a bit of what the cross was about. He died. He bled to wash away your sin. Have you received that? Have you received his freedom from sin? He died on the cross so that you could die to your sin. So whatever sin has you entangled, ensnared, enslaved, he died to free you from that. So just ask you tonight, have you received Jesus? And by the way, that's what you get when you come to Christ. You get him. You know, we get all kinds of benefits, right? We get forgiveness. We get freedom from sin. We get you know, a new family that we're a part of. We get adopted, all these things. The main thing you get, though, is you get God. You get this God who loves you enough to become a human being and be crucified for you. 
That's who you get when you come to Christ. Take him tonight. I mean, I just don't know what more he could do to show you his love for you and how much he would love to bring you into his family. Did you guys notice that the psalm doesn't have any call for vengeance? Kind of refreshing, right? A lot of the psalms, when, when David's in trouble, he's also like, break the teeth of my enemies. And, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, right? The cries for God to have vengeance. That's not in this psalm. Isn't that interesting? Because this psalm is particularly about the cross, and that's exactly the way Jesus was on the cross. Jesus did not ask for God to judge his attackers. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As he's hanging on the cross, guys, he says, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. He came to be forsaken for those who had forsaken him. Guys, Jesus was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And not only was he a volunteer, he was a victorious volunteer. I think that's another thing we don't get about the cross. Jesus saw the cross as his exaltation. He saw the cross as his, his way to win. His way to win people for him. His way to be ascended as king. And the rest of Psalm 22 is about that. It's about victory. Let's look at the victory of his suffering. By quoting that first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is taking on the entire psalm as being about him. The, the, the forsaken part in the first 21 verses. And then there's a massive mood change in verse 22. Did you hear it? You know, he's talking about, you know, he's been encircled and he's being pierced and all this stuff. And then you hear a huge mood change. The, the music would have to change, right? In verse 22, it's sad music or maybe dramatic music. And then it goes to something more triumphant, right? Psalm 22 doesn't just show what Jesus has been through his sufferings, but what he accomplished through his sufferings. Take a look at it. His victorious resurrection. Okay? In the midst of what's clearly a description of a Friday afternoon execution, he says surprisingly in verse 22, I'll see you all in church on Sunday. Take a look at it. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Kind of interesting he has plans to be at church, right? So this is a picture, guys, a thousand years before Jesus was crucified that he would rise again. There's not a ton of stuff in the Old Testament out there, but this is a pretty strong hint. And I hope I didn't ruin Easter for you. Spoiler alert, he does not stay dead, okay? Uh, it's been a long time. I feel like we're okay with giving away the ending of the story. But Jesus was raised because God did hear his pleas. All those pleas in the first 21 verses were actually heard. In Hebrews 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You're thinking like, he was heard? How was he heard? You know, seems like he got crucified. How did he get heard in all of his pleas? He got heard through the resurrection. The resurrection is God's answer to Jesus' pleas for rescue. And that's how he's going to rescue us too, through resurrection. Look at his victorious leading his people in worship. Look at verse 22 again. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. And then listen to this. This is the reason for worship that Jesus has as he's in our midst leading us in worship. He says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. He's talking about himself. God rescued me. God resurrected me, but has heard him. He has heard his cry. 
From you come my praise in the great congregation, my vow I will perform. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your heart live forever. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, he quotes this passage and he sees it as Jesus' presence with us in worship every time we gather. He quotes this part in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What he's saying is that even as we gather every Sunday morning, or even as we gather right now, that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is in our midst, and he's leading us in worship, and the worship he's leading us in is his own vindication through the cross and resurrection. Isn't that amazing? He's victoriously going to reign over the world. Look at verse 27. And the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he will rule over the nations. So this, this one who was forsaken is raised. He's leading his people in worship, and it says he'll be a king over all nations. This is to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, right? This is to fulfill Psalm 2, where it promises the king that he's going to reign over the whole world. Guys, Jesus is a king, and he's king over all nations. And he's not only king over all nations. Look at this. He's king over all ages. Look at verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn and what he's done. This is really cool because not only is Jesus having died and resurrected and ascended, not only is he with us, leading us in worship, he'll be this great king of all nations, but it says, He's king of all ages. Isn't that cool? And this is a great reason for you kids to be in with us tonight, to think about the resurrection, to think about the victory of Jesus. Because we have something really important to hand down to you kids. We're not always going to be around. We want to hand down to you the good news of Jesus Christ. You hand it down to your kids, and they hand it down to theirs. We have something to pass down to those yet unborn, that Jesus has conquered sin and death through his cross and resurrection. And just by simple faith in Jesus Christ, you can receive that. And then he's victoriously going to roll out a feast. Look at verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Before him bow down all those who go down to the dust, even, even one who could not keep himself alive. That Jesus is going to throw this feast, not just for the rich, but for the poor, for all of the earth who trust in him. There's a feast here. Isn't that amazing? There's a feast coming. Where do you guys remember in the Psalms talk about a feast or maybe a table or food? Yeah, the next Psalm over, right? In the next Psalm over, Psalm 23, it says, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Here's the cool thing, guys, is that Jesus took Psalm 22 so you could have Psalm 23, right? Jesus took Psalm 22, that's his experience, so that you could have Psalm 23, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And then listen to this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. See how that's the opposite of 22? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus took Psalm 22 to give you Psalm 23. This is the victory of Jesus, guys. This is the fruit of his forsakenness. Psalm 22 ends, this is kind of cool, Psalm 22 ends the way Jesus' life ended. Remember at the end of Jesus' life, he said, 
it is finished, right? He gave over his spirit to the Lord. Look at the end of Psalm 22, very last line. He has done it. Isn't that awesome? It is finished. He has done it. It's done. It's finished. I think that's a really good reason, guys, to get super graphic about the cross and really think about it. Seeing the physical sufferings is just the tip of the iceberg of his suffering for our sins. I think it's super important to get graphic and get intense about it and really look at it and see it because, guys, it assures us that it's finished. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and I hope you're not thinking, what can I add to this? You know, how can I get myself more right with God than this does, right? If you ever question, guys, that your sin is truly removed, if you've ever had a thought that there's like some more thing that you need to do to gain acceptance with God, if you've ever been tempted to carry around your guilt and your regrets with you as some sort of self-flagellation thing, look at the cross. Look at what we've seen tonight. What are you going to add to that? You're like, well, you know, I like what you did, Jesus, but I need to add a few good deeds just to be sure. That's insulting, right? We're not going to do that, right? You say, hey, I like what you did, Jesus, but I'd like to make a sacrifice of my own. No, it's finished. It's done. Or you say, well, you know, maybe God would accept me a little more if I kind of wallowed in guilt and regret. Guys, come on. Really? Look at the cross. Your sin has been thoroughly dealt with. Amen? I mean, you look at the cross, you go like, this has been thoroughly dealt with. This is more than I knew it needed, right? This has been thoroughly dealt with. Hear Jesus say to you tonight, it is finished. He has done it. And then what you should do from there is have a really, really good Friday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it's finished. Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent of any thought that anything we do adds to that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to like fully, fully rest in the substitutionary death of your son, Jesus. Father, you're so good to us. You loved us so much to give us your only son. It's amazing. Lord, help us to really, really enjoy the fact that you've taken care of all of our sin. And we're so thankful, too, that you heard the prayers of Jesus Christ and vindicated him. We're so thankful to see him reigning as king, to someday see with our eyes him reigning as king over all nations and spreading a feast out for all those who trust in him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to go out and speak of this grace that we've received, that more and more people would join the feast to come. We pray, Lord, for those parts of us that we still kind of dwell on our sin and we get trapped in it over and over again. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be cleansed of such sin as we think about your great love and ponder the cross. We pray, Lord, that it would not only take away our guilt, which we know it does, but we pray also that it would take away any of the enslavements that still linger. We pray, Lord, we'd lean fully into your grace for that as well. As we take communion, Lord, we pray that you would not only give it as a time of remembrance, but feeding, that by the power of your Spirit that our souls would feast upon Christ. That we would receive his life in a special way as we receive this bread and cup. We pray, Lord, for anyone who's here who maybe realized for the first time that they don't yet know you. We pray, Lord, that they would just simply put out their hands to receive. 
Lord, faith is an empty hand to receive a gift. It doesn't take any skill, any merit, any goodness to put out the hand. We pray, Lord, that many would do that. We pray for this weekend, for all the churches in the valley and around the world. Lord, we pray that you would seek and save the lost all across the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.